from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Welcome to a media-focused edition of Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. We've always had a fascination with media, its watchdog role in American politics, and especially these days. We're going to deep dive into the politics of media, today's media biases and some of media's pivotal victories, as well as some catastrophic failures. There are four of us here at the table today. Firstly, of course, my co-host, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, author, worldwide lecturer, and walking encyclopedia of everything political and historic, Ed Larson. How you doing, Ed? Thanks very much. Great to be here again with you. Joining us here from the office right down the hall, Stuart Halpern is a media, movie, entertainment executive and innovator. He built the MovieTickets.com brand as head of marketing, and he also co-founded Hollywood.com. And in full disclosure, Stuart is our general manager here at Kurtco Media. Thanks for sitting in today, Stuart. Thanks for including me. And now our hot mic guest. He's been a media critic, producer, and lecturer since the 1980s. He was founding director and associate professor of the Park Center for Independent Media at my alma mater, Ithaca College. He also founded the media watch group FAIR in 1986. Jeff Cohen has produced a number of documentary movies. He's written books like Cable News Confidential, and he's been a commentator on CNN, its rival Fox News, as well as MSNBC. Oh, and his columns have been published by major newspapers, well, everywhere. Welcome, Jeff. It's nice to have you. Uh, great to be here. Since I've heard I'm on the hot mic, I'm going to be very cautious. So let's start with this. You were one of the producers of a new documentary that has been called a horror film of the most realistic kind. Tell us about the concept behind corporate coup d'etat. Well, the the movie looks at what's happened in our country in the last 40 years where big, politically powerful corporations have taken control of economics, politics, the media, to the detriment of most citizens, including many who voted for Trump. The movie attempts to answer, how did we get to Trump? And the main villain is uh, big corporations. No, it's not Trump. It's the big corporations. Right. In fact, we argue in the movie that Trump is a just a symptom of this horrific disease called corporatism. Clearly, corporations and private interests have a whole lot to say about how this country runs. And there is so much anger out there. And we talked to all these individuals in Ohio who had voted for Trump, lifelong Democrats, and they were telling us uh, that, you know, they gave up on the Democratic Party. They just wanted to throw a wrench into the, into the uh, uh, motor. Uh, Ed? I grew up and spent my entire youth in just the part of Ohio you're talking about. I didn't think the Republicans were going to nominate Trump. But once they did, I was convinced he was going to win because I was from Ohio and, and Ohio was key. And I didn't right. see how in a world that Hillary was going to win in Ohio. Deep diving back into media for just right. a moment, Jeff. I would like to know uh, how you feel about the concept of media becoming the story. I think it's a good thing. I believe more people need to be skeptical media consumers. If you don't know who owns each of these news outlets, then you're kidding yourself. So I like it that media is the story. Like, you need to so know... tell our listeners who owns some of yeah. these news outlets? Right. Well, CNN is owned uh, by AT&T. Uh, MSNBC is owned by Comcast. 
These are supposed to be the left-wing or liberal channels. But those two owners, AT&T and Comcast, are working day and night, hand in glove, with Donald Trump and the Trump administration to end Internet neutrality, a free and open Internet. It certainly doesn't seem like CNN is... is pandering to Donald Trump. When's the last time you saw CNN deal with the issue of net neutrality? They'll attack Trump and Fox News will defend Trump. But on none of these channels will you see a discussion of how corporations really dominate the political system and the economy. Uh, Ed, jump in. But you're describing it as this is an ideological driven assault. Some people will say it's totally profit-driven, simply to make profit that Fox moved one way and MSNBC moved the other way. Now, is there any justification that this was just profit motive in trying to exploit the market? Yeah, I'm arguing that it's profit-driven, and there are certain stories, if you work in mainstream TV news, as I did, you know there are certain stories that are off-limits. But it's important to know what stories you can cover and what stories you can't, and if you work your way up, the chain of command in mainstream media. You tend to be very good at politics and diplomacy and making nice with corporate owners, and you may not be a good aggressive journalist, whether you work at Fox News or MSNBC. Come on in, Stuart. I've read some of your writings, and you talked about a two-on-the-left, three-on-the-right rule. Yeah. Can you shed some light on that, <laughs> yeah. please? When I was at MSNBC, in, and which was supposed to be a middle-of-the-road channel back then, in 2002, in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq, I was the senior producer of the Phil Donahue show. And the management basically took over the show. They had basically dictated to us who could get on the air and who couldn't. So they said, um, if you have one guest who is anti the upcoming invasion, you have to have two that are pro-invasion. If oh. you have two guests on the left... You have to have three on the right. At one meeting like this in a big room, a bunch of people in the room, a producer was really excited. I think I could book Michael Moore for Thursday. He was obviously known as a critic of the impending invasion. And she was told, you'll have to have three right-wingers to balance Michael Moore. So, Jeff, for a minute, let's, let's talk about the dawn of the 24-hour cable news channel, CNN. Uh, they were the first, right? Yep. Well, they really were built on the back of Bush Sr.'s Iraq War. No doubt. They started in 1980, and then when the Gulf War comes, they own the story. Um, they're competing with other channels, ABC, CB, the broadcast channels, that are only covering it episodically. And if you want to cover, you know, want to watch the war news hour after hour, CNN is the place you go. There's an irony that historians, after all of the coverage and CNN lauded for covering a war like no war had ever been covered before, it turned out that so many of the themes that CNN pounded into our head were false. You'll remember the hoopla and the excitement about the Patriot missile shooting down Iraqi scuds in midair. It was a hoax. Uh, there were studies done later and found out that the Patriot was an utter failure. CNN is too close to the Pentagon. They've always been too close to the Pentagon. And the first Gulf War really exposed it. Uh, the research done right after their applauded, their award-winning coverage showed they were giving a lot of hoaxes to the American public, cheerleading for a war when the facts were wrong. Ed, come on in. 
Well, the problem CNN faced when it was founded by Ted Turner was, well, 24-hour news, but people weren't interested in 24-hour news. They wanted to watch baseball. They wanted to watch TV shows. And so when the Gulf War came, they finally had an issue that could keep people turned on all the time, keep people wanting to watch the news all the time. Now, they needed to put a spin on it, and the spin, of course, would have to be a pro-American version because that's what would get the people to watch it. The problem was when the war ended, they sat there and suddenly their ratings plummeted until the O.J. Simpson trial came, and suddenly you had a celebrity who was caught in this gruesome murder sort of issue, but then they had to turn what was you know, a trial that just occurred during part of the day and there wasn't even a trial for a long time into something that would cover 24 hours, which they did. But I witnessed it from the inside that management would get glued on a story and the reporters and the producers are scratching their heads saying, There's no story. Yeah, this doesn't. Well, think about it. Shark attacks. You know, if it's a slow summer, they start doing shark attacks, and they've done it summer after summer, even when the shark attacks don't go up. (laughs) Again, turning news into an entertainment format. The worst one ever, how many people remember Chandra Levy? Yes. Gary Condit. Gary Condit was a relatively unknown Congress member from Central Valley of California. He had an affair with a younger woman uh, while he was married. And uh, she died in random street crime. And month after month, in the summer of 2001, that's all any of the channels covered. And every night they would analyze where the story stands. They'd speculate about his sex life. How many other women did he engage in in rough sex? It was all mythology. There was absolutely no evidence. Well, you got to make some news entertaining. <laughs> otherwise, who's going to watch? Well... I'm willing to argue that every journalist wants an audience, but what's happened in media today in the last few decades is pure fiction. It's often pure fiction. It's stories that aren't news that become the news of the day for month after month. And you know when the Condit story ended? September 11th, 2001. Here you had this evil guy. He was the face of evil day after day. It was this congressman condit whose only sin was he had an affair. Finally, he was replaced as the villain in TV news by Osama bin Laden. They were speculating about him being involved in a murder up till the jets hit the Twin Towers. And then, like it had never happened, Gary Condit disappeared from view. And then later we learn it was street crime, and the guy confessed. The woman, he, young woman he had an affair with was jogging through the park in Washington, D.C., and we know who the killer is. So we, we can't really let that go without taking a moment and talking about that uh, September 11, 2001, because uh, the announcers on 24-hour news cable channels and the consumer here in America and the people down the street in New York City we're finding out about what was going on all at the same time. No doubt. I mean, again, that's where cable news... I mean, they all went 24-7. The broadcast networks went 24-7 news. And uh, you could argue that in the first few days, it was real news. It was real journalism. Later, it became cheering for... I remember the talk show host, let's attack someone. God damn it, why haven't we attacked any country yet? 
because we didn't know who had done it. So, you know, it went from journalism and news to can we stir up the next war? I don't think we can proceed and talk about something like uh, CNN covering the Iraq war without going back to CBS covering the Vietnam War and actually putting the war in our living rooms back in the 60s and early 70s. Yeah. I mean, I I have a a critical view on that, that in 1964, 65, 66, 67, there was almost no debate on CBS News. They were cheerleaders. Walter Cronkite would admit to you he was a cheerleader and he was embarrassed by what he did in those first years. And so many people of my generation went over and died thinking it was a good war. But you're right. It did bring death and destruction and the lighting of villages on fire with a Zippo uh, lighter into people's living rooms. It put us into rooms. foxholes. No doubt. It was, it was different. And, and then the important thing for Cronkite is uh, he does a documentary where he says, you know, we're in a quagmire. We aren't winning this war. The Pentagon isn't telling the truth. And President Johnson then says to one of his aides, after Cronkite finally turns on the war, if we've lost Walter, we've probably lost the country. And it was a turning point in the Vietnam War and helped the opposition and helped the end of that war. But if you look back at Walter Cronkite during that period, the model, the the idol of these people was Edward L. Murrow. He made his name being very pro-war. The difference between Murrow in World War II and Cronkite and Brinkley and Huntley in uh, Vietnam War is by 1965, one year after the Vietnam escalation, there were anti-war demonstrations. The first sit-in, at uni- uh, the first teach-in, University of Michigan, 1965. So occasionally that debate about Vietnam War got into the New York Times, but it didn't get on the news. So you mentioned the classic statement that if we've lost Walter Cronkite, we've lost America. Yes. What I'd like to know from you is, did you think that media was really a reflection of America, or was America a reflection of the media? I think the media are so dominant that um, America becomes a reflection of the media. It's totally true today where you choose your side. I'm a Rachel Maddow fan. I'm a Sean Hannity fan. I really think in a society as media-dominated as we are, that media, that the public's attitudes basically grow out of the media that they consume. So when we come back in 15 seconds, I'd like to talk to you a little more about media and the making of a monster. But we'll be back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. So what you gonna do about it? So I'd like to go back to 1960 for a moment and talk about the debate between JFK and Nixon and how that really shaped the election. And that was a media moment, wasn't it, Jeff? A big moment for television. Uh, People that heard it on the radio thought Nixon had won the debate. People who saw this young, handsome John Kennedy debating Nixon on television thought John Kennedy had won. So it really was an understanding. There was an understanding there 
of the importance of television now. Uh, Greater than that of radio. Yes, superseding radio. And it should we should point out Roger Ailes that, you know, Ailes a few years later becomes the media advisor to Richard Nixon and says, God damn it, you got to put makeup on. That was the issue from your perspective that Nixon was sweating too much? It, for most people's perspectives, yeah. he just did not look good on television compared to this photogenic young. Well, well also, one his, of the his, his five o'clock shadow actually yeah. came through his makeup and made him look, you know, pretty uh, homeless like on the or at least sinister. But if you think about that, before we start saying that poor Richard Nixon was destroyed by the rise of television, he was saved earlier. The checker speech, Eisenhower had already decided to throw him off the ticket. Tell us a little about that, because we have a young audience here. It was a scandal. There was a scandal involving Richard Nixon that he had been taking money and gifts from basically corporate sponsors. And so he he asked Eisenhower, just give me one chance to defend myself on television. And he went on television in a sort of a fireside chat, and he gave this talk about his wife's cloth coat and that of all the gifts I've gotten, the one thing I won't give back is checkers our dog. And he made this wonderful speech on the media, and it was television that saved Nixon, and that's Part of the reason I think Nixon got into the debates, there had never been televised debates before, but Nixon thought from the checkers speech that he was good on television, and it turned out this media, which had caused his survival earlier, ended up proving his demise. And remember, young people, you can watch the checkers speech by Googling it. And you know who was the director of the 1960 debates? It was the guy who created 60 Minutes. Don Hewitt. Yeah, Don Hewitt. Media history is more fascinating than we thought, kids. And then later Nixon tries to save himself, his reputation, by doing a media show with David Frost. So Nixon has a sort of a love-hate relationship with the media, and we shouldn't view it as he viewed himself as a victim of the media because he consciously tried to use the media throughout his career, and he actually often did so brilliantly. So I want to take us back to a couple of special moments in media and get your commentary on it, uh, everybody here at the table. I want to take you back just a few years to 12.17 p.m., Monday, November 7th, 2016. As CNN announced that Hillary Clinton's odd of winning the presidency had risen from 78% last week to 91% the day before the election. Wouldn't that be one of media's most embarrassing low watermark? I think they embarrassed themselves through the whole campaign. I mean, uh, I, I live in New York. Um, I've watched the media create this character, Donald Trump. Uh, for decades, fawning coverage in the gossip press, in the business press, for a guy who's really an unsuccessful self-promoter. And you get to the point in 2015, early 2016, where unprecedented in U.S. political history, one candidate was getting more coverage on TV news than all other candidates combined. And, you know, in the so-called invisible primary where the most important thing in the, during the primary season is getting media attention. When one candidate is getting more coverage than all others, there was no Republican who had a chance. So I would argue it was CNN 
and MSNBC that had a policy of all Trump all the time. If he was late getting to a podium, they would have the camera focused on the empty podium for 25 minutes. And then every word Trump said was on the air. And study after study from Harvard to University of Wisconsin has shown that the television news especially promoted Trump in a way that there was almost no Republican who had a chance against him. Uh, so, I, I mean, I see Trump as a media creation. Not only Jeff Zucker, who's the head of NBC Entertainment, creates The Apprentice for Donald Trump. Then Jeff Zucker moves to CNN, where he basically mandates it's all Trump all the time. Given what you say, Trump was the one who knew how to create and use the media. So he deserves credit for figuring a way to make the press cover him. Someone described that to me. How did, did he do this or did the media create him? He'd had his own show on television, The Apprentice. It worked well. He knew how to use the media and use the media interest and what would drive the news. And so he knew coming down on an escalator and sitting there at the beginning and attacking immigrants would make him a news story. And the way he held his news conferences and the way he'd attack a New York Times journalist or say this or say that or throw them out, that sort of thing would drive So he just used audiences. outrageousness. I think it was, a, it was a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. But I mean, their profits went through the roof. Uh, you know, Les Moonves, who was the head of CBS at the time, said there's an election circus going on. The money is rolling in. Keep going, Donald. Stay out there. Donald's role in this race is really helping us. Again, it's what I've been getting at from the beginning of this discussion is that this corporate greed that you have these people who care nothing about journalism or democracy controlling our media system. And we ended up with Donald Trump. But going back in history, how's that any different than the Hearst Newspaper Corporation realizing a war would drive sales? Or the what they did for Joe McCarthy until Edward R. Murrow, two years later, finally stopped him. Well, then the story became bringing down McCarthy, and it was just as good a story as raising up McCarthy. But see, that right, and that's what's happening today at CNN and MSNBC. They created, they helped create him. No one else in history was able, no presidential candidate, if you couldn't get to a camera, Donald Trump would just phone it, literally phone it in. He would call Don Lemon at CNN or Charlie Rose at CBS, and they would interview him and they'd put a picture of him. No other candidate, Hillary Clinton didn't that get that, Bernie Sanders didn't get that, but Donald Trump did, and it was a policy of management, and now CNN, especially MSNBC, they're raking in the profits as they try to be anti-Trump. No one could get on the air on those networks to remind them what a key role you guys played in getting Trump elected in the first place. There were two parallel stories. Bernie Sanders, a relatively uncovered, unknown senator, came out of nowhere on the left and was taking on the Clinton machine and giving them fits. And Donald Trump, the celebrity, was coming on the right, having smaller rallies than Sanders. But they covered one of those stories and not the other. There's a famous Tyndall report where Andrew Tyndall, all he ever did was count the minutes of ABC, CBS, and NBC's nightly newscasts for what stories are being covered and what aren't. In the first 11 months of 2015, during the so-called invisible primary period, 
Donald Trump was covered on ABC World News Tonight, the show my mom and 8.5 million other Americans watched. They covered Donald Trump 80 minutes, and they covered Bernie Sanders' campaign 20 seconds, one-third of one minute. Can we have a quick discussion, Jeff, on the one-sided coverage um, relating to health care pharmaceutical companies and Bernie Sanders. Yeah, there's a there's an old uh, George Carlin joke. Uh, actually, one of his more innocuous jokes because he does real social did real social criticism. He says uh, we have a partial score in from the West Coast, Los Angeles six, and no other score. My point is that that joke says a lot about coverage today of very important stories. It's what I call propaganda by omission. There was a point in the Democratic debate where uh, Joe Biden says, Bernie Sanders, your plan of Medicare for all is going to cost $32 trillion over 10 years. And Bernie Sanders responds, that's right, Joe. But if you look at government figures, if we keep going the way we're going, it'll be $50 trillion. So it actually saves society money. The next day, I looked at all the coverage, and they only had the one score, the partial score from the West Coast, which was how much uh, Bernie Sanders' plan would allegedly cost. And they didn't compare it to another score, which is, what if we keep going with the current system we have? You have the same thing on climate change. We're always told how expensive the Green New Deal will be. That other score is... How expensive will it be for society if we keep going the way we're going? I wonder if you could explain to me how uh, having, I don't know, Cialis or some other pharmaceutical company advertising on one of these networks uh, would affect the coverage. How does the sponsor influence? When I went, was being tested to be the permanent co-host of CNN's Crossfire, which was then the biggest show along with Larry King on the channel. The guy who headed the show had me in his office and he said, you know, are you going to be attacking General Electric? And I was well known as a critic of that corporation, uh, their environmental policy, the tax policy, what have you. And they were the main sponsor of CNN Crossfire. And I think everyone who's on the air knows who the main sponsors are. And the main sponsor of the nightly news is the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, so, Jeff, you just mentioned the program Crossfire. So I just reached out, grabbed our producer of this show, Mike, and I asked him to sit in my seat and talk to you for a minute about the history or maybe the demise of Crossfire. One of the things I remember, and I think this was 15 years ago now, t 2004, John Stewart was invited as a guest on the Crossfire with Tucker, Tucker Carlson, Carlson and Paul Begala. Begala. And they thought it was just going to be a good time and talking about comedy. And he took them to task. He took them to task. He basically challenged them to stop hurting America. Right. Um, I don't know if you were around then. Or... Oh, yeah. No, I was long gone from CNN, but I remember the moment. It was, it was brilliant. It was the role that uh, political comedians have been playing in our society for a couple decades now. Uh, they can tell the truth where mainstream journalists don't. They can say the tough things that need to be said, and mainstream journalists can't or don't. And another example of that, of course, going on today would be John Oliver. 
he takes every single possible opportunity to attack AT&T, which is his corporate sponsor. And he knows that enhances his credibility and helps with his audience, and so does AT&T. Maybe he can get away with it because he's somewhat a comedian, but actually I think the John Oliver show has moved beyond pure comedy. Yeah, it's investigative comedy. He's invented a thing here. Uh, But I agree with you. I mean, I come out to L.A. a lot, and I've got friends who work in Hollywood. They work for the same companies that I worked for often. You know, these giant entertainment companies own the news. In the format of comedy and drama, you can often take on the biggest powers in our society, and they are these corporations. I mean, the political comedy that we have in our society today, I think is our saving grace because they can get away with it. These are people that have become the truth tellers, and I would argue it's an indictment of well, they, 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 they too are guilty of the one-sided view, the error by omission. They certainly don't tell a meet-me-in-the-middle sort of story. They have their opinion, and they tell it with a flair that makes you laugh. Uh, again, I don't begrudge a, a journalist or a comedian having a point of view. Uh, there's no problem with that. I find some of these comedians are more likely to attack someone on their side than Rachel Maddow does. Uh, So, I mean, I I feel that the uh, political comics are often braver in many respects. Uh, But uh, what I always would tell my journalism classes, there's something really wrong with television news when the best news shows are on the comedy channel. If you want to get longer sound bites of the people, the, the presidents and the senators and the investigators, these comedy shows give you more... It gives you longer sound bites than are on the nightly news. It's it's sickening, but it's true. So with so much focus on Trump, such overwhelming obsession, where every minute of every day, you almost change the channel if they're not talking about something outrageous that came out of Washington today. If you give so much attention to the tweets and the pronouncements that you know have a falsehood in every sentence, you're even on the so-called liberal channels, you're doing a disservice to your viewers. What's remarkable is there is no other news. What happened to the, to the rest of the world? The news show I listen to religiously, I want to give them a plug, is Democracy Now!, hosted by Amy Goodman and Juan Gonzalez. And they don't cover the tweets. It's not all about Trump. We are only 4% of the world population. And uh, a news show should cover the news. And that's not what you get from so-called cable news channels here. Well, Jeff Cohen, Stuart Halpern, Ed Larson, thank you so much for today. We got to go. We certainly had a great conversation. I hope you'll come back, Jeff. I'd love to. This is fun. Okay. If you're looking for Jeff, you can click on to jeffcohen.org and find out more about Jeff. And thanks so much for meeting us here in the middle today. Have a good day. If you like what you heard, please help us by telling your friends. And of course, subscribe to Politics Meet Me in the Middle. And if you have time, please leave a review. It really matters to us. You can also check us out at kurtco.com, C-U-R-T-C-O.com. This episode of Meet Me in the Middle was recorded at Kurtco Media's Malibu Podcast Studios and was produced and edited by Mike Thomas. Audio engineering was by Michael Kennedy. And our theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. It's-
Media, media for your mind.